0: Good morning, everyone. We are going to be reading from Psalm 24 this morning. Um, There are blue Bibles under your seats. If you don't have a Bible, please take this one as a gift from us. you're not stealing from the church, we would love to be able to give you guys a Bible. Um, Our reading is going to be on page 507 in those blue Bibles. Um, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world who seek the face of God and of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We are in the Book of Psalms this summer, and that's a, we, are gonna, we plan on being in the Book of Psalms many summers to come, uh, taking a break from our normal sermon series from the Gospel According to Mark to learn from what has been uh, God, the songbook or the worship manual for God's people for literally millennia. This is a book that has been with God's people being formed since, their, uh, since the days of Moses, all the way until when they uh, came back from exile. It's been very, very precious. Um, It was precious to Jesus and his disciples. In fact, Jesus seems to quote from and identify with the Psalms more than any other book in the Bible. And the Psalms are the... He not only would have sung them along with the other disciples at the Last Supper, but quotes from them directly in his last hours. Um, And so they're very important for us to get to know, but more importantly... Uh, we we understand from Jesus himself that these books lead us directly to Christ. And so today we're going to be looking at this psalm and specifically seeing how it anticipates the king of glory, the true king of glory who Christians know to be Jesus himself. And so... Um, I, uh, the, and the book of Psalms today, you'll find with this one particularly, is not just a book about worship. You're not just reading it like you might read a textbook. It's not just demanding worship. It's provoking worship. It moves us to worship. And even as I was praying this morning, that's my own prayer for my own soul as well as yours, is that as a result of hearing God's words, we would be moved to worship God even louder today. Um, now we, uh, even for those of us who, it, it produces worship in us as a church, it really, we've said before, worship is what we're made for, it's what binds us together here, um, and I, I find that worship is necessary no matter what season of life I'm in, and it's necessary no matter what season of life you might find yourself in, even for those of us who are like me, who get a little stuck inside themselves, anyone like that? You get a little stuck in your own world. Maybe it's great celebrations or just sorrows that don't seem to ever end. Anyone else here want to be moved by God, want to experience him in a genuine way, but you just don't? It could be because of the pace of your life or the lack of pace to your life. I don't know how many people, once they're out of school or they're retired, it's fighting for a authentic relationship with God is more difficult than ever, or because the, simply the struggles of life have given you spiritual, tu, spiritual tunnel vision, in which you're unable to see anything beyond your own pain, your own uncertainty, your own anxiety and apprehensions, wherever you are coming from, Psalm 24 wants to produce worship in us, and again, not just in the claims that it's going to make about God, which is really important, but actually in the movement of the psalm itself. The verses, in a sense, take us on a journey, a journey that takes place in three stages, three stages that I want to look at directly today. I want to look at, number one, the God who owns, number two, the God who sees, and number three, the God who saves. And on this journey, I hope our imaginations are swept up into the glory of this kind of God. Let's start with that first one, the God who Owns. Now, recently, our family really got into a kids show called Bluey. Um, this uh, it's a show about blue healer dogs. It's an animated cartoon of all things with Australian accents, and somehow it man- manages to be absolutely hilarious to the whole family in the process. It's definitely not a Christian show. Um, it, it was perhaps proven most clearly in one of the episodes that we watched recently, uh, where the family sits down for dinner, all these dogs together, uh, and they're about to eat, and the two girls stop the family, and they ask their parents to hold hands, which their parents look around and grab hands, and they begin to recite a kind of prayer together that goes like this. For the golden corn and the apple on the tree, for the golden butter and the Honey from the bees for the fruits and nuts and berries we gather on our way. We praise the loving mother earth and thank her every day. It's interesting. I find this, you can find this mealtime blessing from the Waldorf, Waldorf school. It seems to be what, where it came from originally. And uh, I know some roll their eyes at something like this. I mean, give me a break. Praise the loving mother earth. But I find it fascinating You see, many modern people today, maybe you, would say we no longer need God to explain the world. Science can do that for us. We no longer need religion. We no longer need faith in God. And yet, even in a secular world that's eager to shake God's existence off, or at least a God that I have to answer to, we still can't shake some of the leftovers of faith. At the very least, there's a sense, even in our culture at large, even in secular society, that all of this, all the world, that it doesn't belong to me. We see this come out in this generation's, my generation, the one after, this generation's zeal, particularly, and I I do mean zeal for environmentalism, for a desire to protect, to steward the planet and its resources. Fueled by a deeply held belief that this, all of this, does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It doesn't belong to any of us. And we must stop treating it like it does. It's interesting to notice the zeal of that, those kind of statements, those that, uh, those, um, those creeds, if you will. But I also see this that these uh, these leftovers of faith, if you will, in our love for thankfulness as a society. Even as I don't think that I would call our our society a thankful one, we still want to be thankful. We devote an entire holiday to being thankful. We teach our kids to be thankful, and yet the question is, who are we thankful to exactly? One of my favorite music artists, Andrew Peterson, frames this really well. Don't you ever wonder why, in spite of all that's wrong here, there's still so much that goes so right, and beauty abounds. Because sometimes when you walk outside, the air is full of song here. The thunder rolls, and the baby sighs, and the rain comes down. And when you see the spring has come, and it warms you like a mother's kiss, don't you want to thank someone? Don't you want to thank someone for this? It's interesting, Peterson is talking about the kind of gratitude that comes not just from uh, when somebody does something kind for you, but something much bigger than that. The kind of gratitude that comes when you hear the music of morning birds, which happens way too often in our, ki- in our kid's house. I mean, as soon as those birds are singing, we're up. It would, but also when you're at, uh, late at night and you see the, it's like the whole sky is on fire. Or when you bite into a ripe peach, or take a long cold drink of water on a hot day, or you stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon, moments in which you can only say, wow, but some part of you wants to say, thanks. The thing is, if our world and our experience are really only a product of random chance, then you don't need to be thankful to anyone. In fact, it would be a bit immature to be thankful. It's merely happy chance, happy circumstance. No one is giving it to you. There is no need, no one needs your gratitude. Not an impersonal universe, and certainly not Mother Earth. But the Bible makes sense of this gratitude that seems to haunt us. A gratitude that looks beyond Earth or Mother Earth that these children in the TV show were praying to. It looks to God, the God who first made it all. And the image of verse 2 goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the picture of God giving shape to the land as he separated it from the seas. He is its maker and he is its sustainer. He creates, he himself is uncreated. What he has made also is very good. It is very good, saying something uh, about him and Unlike what he has made, he needs nothing. Not even our praise. And yet praise him we must. It is what we have been made for. We cannot help it. We were made for it to confess that I am not the center of my universe. I am not the point of this story. He is, he is the creator, and I am simply one of his creatures. I was talking about this recently with a friend who asked basically... We're talking about the gospel of all things, and he's making sense of some of its claims. What is the point of all of this? And what he means is, is, I mean, if you, the more we come to learn about the universe, the more we realize how little we know about it and how little we ever will know about it. You think about the Hubble Space Telescope, which focused on just one square of the universe, for, I, for a long period of time, we got that picture back and we found out that little points of light we had assumed were stars or actually galaxies with stars and planets of their own. You talk about, and that's just focusing on one square of the cosmos. You think about how my, many squares are still and still will never yet be explored. If there really are galaxies we may never discover, let alone explore, or at a micro level, if there are microscopic details that our greatest scopes will never witness what is the point. If God is really creator, why would he make so much that we would never see, let alone understand? It makes sense, and perhaps maybe you have wondered it too, but what I told him that th- is that this is only a problem. This is only a problem if all of this is about you. But it's not. The universe, not just the earth, is the Lord's, and every radiating nebula or every twirling bacteria has been made with one purpose, to declare the glory of a God. Our imaginations are far too small to comprehend. Colossians 1 puts it this way, speaking of Jesus' relationship to creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Let me ask you, what does that include? Everything that's not him. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The language of verse 16 says not, not only were all things and by all things, I mean all things created by him, through him, and not only are they held together by him even now, the reason you take another breath, the reason that your cells hold together in your body, the reason that you have life as you know it, the reason that anything here doesn't dissolve and disappear is because God himself holds it together by the word of his power. Not only are they created and held together by God alone but they were created for him. Jesus is not the not only the agent of creation but the very point of it. He is where creation leads. He is the exclamation point that it causes us to declare. Now, before we move on in that because we have to come back to this premise. I have to tell you many people have far too low a view of nature, including our bodies and the planet we live on. We treat them as unimportant, not only unimportant, but expendable, as products to be devoured, despised, or disregarded. Friends, this is atheistic. We spend our lives wishing our bodies were other than they are. We spend our lives trying to change them into what we wish they were in sometimes irreversible ways. And then we treat the earth as a product to consume without concern for how this affects our fellow creatures, especially the most vulnerable among us. One of the things I appreciate about this generation is how honest it is about all of these things. These aren't liberal values, friends, these come from the scriptures. Some of us need to hear the beginning of verse 1 The earth is the Lord's. You could insert in that, The earth is not mine. The earth is not ours, not even your own body is yours, according to the Bible. It belongs to God, which means everything God owns, everything that God makes, if it is good, it has value. More value than I dare say our secular culture gives it. This also means that what God has made must be treasured, protected, used, and yes, enjoyed like it does belong to God. It belongs to him and needs to be treated the same way that a dad would hope that his teenage son would treat the family car when he tosses him the keys. Some of us have far too low a view of nature. But some of us, some people, have far too high a view of nature. We make creation into an ultimate good. Living for God's gifts, whether it be beauty or health or wealth or entertainment. I mean, how many TV shows could you never possibly watch in your lifetime? Living to experience comfort, pleasure, wonder. But the very things that produce all of these things are not goods in themselves. And they certainly are not meant to be praised. Instead, they derive their goodness from the one who has made them. They are neon signs blinking. This is not about you. And they are meant to lead us to worship. And not worship the things themselves, and definitely not Mother Earth, but to lead us like breadcrumbs to the one who made them in the first place. N.T. Wright puts it this way, all the beauty of the world, the beauty that calls our admiration, our gratitude, our worthship at the earthly level is meant as a set of hints, of conspiratorial whispers, of clues and suggestions and flickers of light, all nudging us into believing that behind the beautiful world is not random chance, but a loving God. You know, Christians have every reason to be the most thankful people, to not only enjoy the new grandbaby, or the crashing ocean, or a great movie, or the long-awaited promotion, or a good friend. Christians have every reason not only to receive these things as the gifts that they are, but to see something past them, to see an opportunity in them to worship not the thing itself, but the one that it points to. The problem is, is if you're like me, we live rather unaware of all of these things or worse, act as if they were something that God owed me. The God who creates all things owes me nothing. As Job 41 puts it, who has first, and it's God who's speaking, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What would it be like if we lived like that? God owes no one anything. He must repay no one and yet I don't know how many religious people act this way, get frustrated with God when he doesn't come through on the way that they they thought that they deserved to have him come through, the demands that they make. Perhaps one of the spiritual disciplines we need to re- recapture, friends, is just simply spending daily time listing things to be thankful for, things that lead us as breadcrumbs to our God, especially, and I mean especially, when we are buried in stress or start to feel sorry for ourselves or feel like our suffering will never let up. I don't mean to diminish our suffering or the anxiety that you experience, but something we, sometimes what we need most in those times is to take our eyes off of ourselves, go for a walk And notice, list if you must, all of the things that you just normally wouldn't. The blades of grass, the spiders, the wind, the birds, all of these things that are leading you, again, as a neon sign. This is not about you. Go to bed a little bit earlier and spend time journaling or talking with a spouse about what God has done for you, including what he has done for others which I realize may be especially tough for us, especially when we feel our lack to be grateful for how he has blessed someone else. Make what you might call a breadcrumb list of all the ways that our God has shown himself to be a good God, a powerful God, a wonderful God. It reminds me of a hymn, an old hymn, For the Beauty of the Earth. For the beauty of the earth, for the glory of the skies, for the love which from our birth over and around us lies, for the wonder of each hour of the day and of the night, hill and vale and tree and flower, sun and moons, moon and stars of light, Lord of all, to you we raise this our hymn of grateful praise. Question is do we? Which leads to the second thing that David considers, and that is, number two, the God who sees. Again, David begins with a very clear vision of God as creator, as the God who owns and establishes and sustains everything. But then it's as if his gaze shifts from out there to in here, doesn't it? In verse three, he asks a very interesting question. If you would read this verse with me, look at your Bibles. For who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? and who shall stand in his holy place. I realize this language might be lost on a a few of us, many of us, but this hill of the Lord is where God's presence would rest, where the everywhere present God would concentrate his presence in a particular way and dwell with human beings. On this hill, the Ark of the Covenant and eventually the temple rested, And it is where God himself would be worshipped. Which means, here's what David is saying in this question, and it's enormously important we get this. Out of all of the fullness of what God has made, all these goods and experiences he is responsible for, all this stuff that God has given, there is one good I want most, and it is not the good of his hands, it is the good of his face. In other words, he doesn't want just God's stuff, he wants God himself. He wants to ascend that hill to stand in the very holy place, and I think many people in a sense want this too. Many people want to know God, to connect with God in an authentic way. And so, who then does God welcome to come in? Who does he bring close is the answer to David's question. Who can stand there? Is it, well, pretty much anyone who wants it? The answer seems, if you keep reading, to be an emphatic no. I realize this might be confusing for some of us who imagine God to be a bit like Santa Claus welcoming anyone to sit on his lap, or Joanna Gaines welcoming anyone into her home. It's strange for many of us to imagine God denying anyone, let alone slamming the door and bolting it in anyone's face. But David tells us, even as God owns and loves all the creatures he has made, the ones he welcomes to come near him, who he lets ascend that holy hill as David longs, are those with, a, with clean hands and a pure heart. Now I fear when you hear that phrase, what you hear is God saying he welcomes the perfect You hear what you largely expect to hear from religious people, that Christianity is a religion about doing better and trying harder at being good, at doing better and trying harder than others. You hear that the ones who God loves are the ones who have outperformed the rest. And for some of you, this is a comfort, and some of you, this is a deep source of shame. Many of us want to receive blessing from the Lord, but when we see that description, some of us say to ourselves, well, I'm out, (laughs) clearly. Clean hands, pure heart. If you only knew what I brought with me into those doors, what took place even last night. And yet some of us, looking around us, cross our arms and say, well, I guess I'm good then. Turns out, verse 4 is a really high bar, clean hands and a pure heart, but I think this is a high bar not just for those who feel like we're the mess-ups, but even the most religious person stumbles over. Why? Because it isn't just about what we do. After all, some of us have gotten really good at obeying the rules is as much as it is about why we do it. That is the very point of these verses. In fact, notice the next phrase. Who does God invite? It says, the person who does not lift up his soul to what is false. You could say her soul as well. does not lift their soul up to what is false. This language is not just about the stuff people see on the surface, but about our deepest, most driving desires. The things that we, in a sense, lift our souls up to. The things that we, in other words, put our hope in. The things that we give ultimate importance to. The things we live for. This is worship language. The reformer, John Calvin, once described our hearts as idol-making factories. What he's getting at is the fact that instead of giving our deepest loyalty to God, the God who owns everything and created everything for his glory, the one who clearly only deserves worship, instead of seeking his face, as we'll see in the coming verses, I only seek after his stuff. I make something else, some smaller, some created thing, my God in his place. As D.A. Carson puts it, we, we aim at de-godding God. It's the essence of sin. Just think about the things, to make this more personal, what are the things that, you are, that are easiest for you to spend money and time on? The things that you are quickest to worry about the things you daydream over, the things that if you lost them would make you seriously question if you would ever be okay. We are constantly lifting our souls up, ourselves up to something other than God, and more importantly, according to verse 4, these are false. You'll see it translated in if you have an NIV Bible or others, it'll say idol in that place, and that is true. But nonetheless, it's important the language here is technically false things. These things are false. The word means empty, worthless, or vain. And it gets at the fact that these things that we make into our gods, we try to worship, they cannot stand the pressure. They can't, in the end, come through on what they promise. They are false. Now, this shouldn't make us cynical. It shouldn't It's not as if this should lead us to conclude, well, you really can't trust anyone, can you? Not at all. But what it does warn us is about giving someone something other than God himself ultimate importance in our life. It's only a matter of time before they crack under the pressure. Only God can take the pressure of your security and your significance, of your stability and your success, of your comfort and identity. He is the only one who can take the pressure of being treated as God. But the thing about false gods is not just that they are false, but it's that they make us false too. Did you notice the language there? Does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. A language there, again, doesn't also speak falsehood. Worshiping a false god makes us, in a sense, false. What does this mean? It means that it makes us hypocrites. These idols lead us to justify little and sometimes great compromises to get the thing that we really want. It makes us wonder at moments which catch us off guards, I mean, how we could possibly get away with it. They make us different people in public than we are in private. They create a disconnect between our actions and our motives, between what I say about God and what I do to others They create a disconnect between our hearts and our hands. It's one of the things that Jesus was most direct about. The people who are cleaned up on the outside, as he says, were whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones. They look good on the outside and they're lacking any spiritual life. According to verse 4, even the right things done for the wrong reasons reveal I have lifted my soul not up to God, the one who deserves it, but to something false to an idol. And if, let me ask you, if you are as prone to compromise as I am, then what is this saying about the things that we actually are aiming in for in life, the things we're actually seeking, the things that we are convinced deep down in our bones will actually satisfy? This is why hypocrisy is so serious in the eyes of God and why hypocrites can't stand in his presence. He will only take those who seek his face. In other words, who have soul focus, single-mindedness, who seek his face more than they seek anything else, who, when put to the test, choose him. And I have to tell you, friends, when you say yes to loyalty to God, when you say yes to God, you will end up saying no to a lot of other things, some things, many things that you will deeply want. It may be an opportunity you have always waited for. It may be a kind of future you have spent You've been working your whole life to build. It may be sexual desires that everyone around you is inviting you to celebrate. It may be saying no to someone you deeply love. It may be a great deal of many things that don't feel false but turn out to be in the end. The question is, when it comes down to it, what are you seeking? Is it God's face or is it God's stuff? God tell, Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says this specifically about money, but it could be a great deal of many other things. No one can so- serve two masters, but are you trying to? It's no use trying to dismiss it if you even sense this might be true. Hide it, explain around it. After all, these verses tell us that God sees right to the heart, doesn't he? There's one we cannot hide from. He knows his creatures and he knows how they have spent their lives, the lives he has given them, the the breaths that he has put in their lungs and how few of them they have used to actually give him thanks, let alone recognize his control. He knows how they have spent most of the lives that he has given them to completely disregarding his goodness and claim upon their, upon his, uh, his claim upon their love. It is the essence of betrayal. It's why the Bible frames sin not so much as just breaking a rule of, but of deep-seated rebellion and rejection. I used this illustration before. Perhaps this would help, but imagine, I stole this from somebody else, I think from D.A. Carson, but regardless, of, imagine a family that works Their whole lives comes to the United States as immigrants, and they work at the family store, uh, give most of those proceeds sacrificially every month, live very simply so that they can send their son, their only son, off to college someday, which they're able to do. And then they excitedly go off to see him at college, they visit him on campus, and they finally spot him across the plaza, and they wave to him, son, son, come here. He clearly sees them standing with a friend, only to bow his head in shame and walk away? How would you feel if you were those parents? And yet, isn't that the essence of a God who has given so many good gifts that we we do not recognize, we do not thank him for, we don't live in gratitude over, we don't, they don't provoke us to worship? This is the essence of betrayal, and it's why God takes hypocrisy so seriously. But where does that leave us? If perfection, though, then is not what God is looking for here, if that's not exactly what it's getting at, is so much as it is getting at single-minded devotion, somebody who would seek his face more than they would seek anything else, if that's the essence of righteousness, what it means to be righteous in, uh, in the presence of God, the righteousness that we need, then this righteousness clearly cannot come from ourselves. It has to come from outside of us, from the giver of, the, of all good things, the God of salvation, this verse tells us, which reads us, which leads us then to point number three, the God who saves. Would you read verses seven through eight with me again? They're just too good. Look at your Bibles and read these with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory May come in, who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. It's fascinating. Verse 3, which asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The one that, where it looks at, I guess, inward. Looks at us. Looks at the community. Then, focus its eyes back outward. It turns, uh, it turns this, it turns to a picture of, from asking, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? To see one who does. The gates here seem to be the gates of Jerusalem, and they are told these gates to lift up their heads. Often, these uh, it's these um, this phrase to lift up. This phrase is used often for those who have bowed their heads in shame and humility. But he tells them instead to lift their heads along with those who live inside these city gates, because that's after all what it's after, to see the coming of one David would not, not just call the king, but the king of glory. A kind of king in whom it seems the splendor, the majesty, the worth of the creator God is bound up with. The God who makes all things for his glory has rested this glory on a king. This king of glory whose glory is bound up with God himself. In other words, David turns our eyes back to where we started, to the glory of the creator God, now arriving as a king of glory. And even more than we would see ourselves with brutal honesty, it calls us to see him. Here is what this is getting at. And the English word worship actually derives from the word for worship. Worth, the old English word for worth. In other words, to worship is to attribute worth to something, to say, it's to a kind of ultimate worth to something. It's as if to say, now that is valuable, that deserves my attention. It's interesting. If false worship is our problem, if giving ultimate worth is to something else is the problem. The only thing that will correct it is seeing something else that is even more worthwhile. It's why Jesus uses two very interesting parables when he's speaking of the kingdom and the one who would enter into it. He says, he describes a, a, a uh, first uh, a, a man who goes out into a field and finds a treasure buried there and goes back to buy that field only to find out that it's going to cost him everything. And he willingly gives over all that he has. Why? Because he finds in that field something more precious than everything he owns. Second, an image of a pearl merchant who whose business is to buy pearls and walks through the market and finds one that he knows has found something really special. And again, what's the cost of it? Literally, he's going to have to sell everything, give up everything for that Pearl of great price. But why does he do it? Because he sees in that pearl something more beautiful, more significant, that is worth giving his life over for. When Jesus, in other words, calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him, to give up our very lives, it's no coincidence that he says that's actually how you find true life. You find the thing you are looking for, the thing you were made for. All of your happiness, in other words, everything you've been longing for your entire life, you see that it's located in. Christ himself. Notice again, this glory, though, is bound up with the king's victory. This king of glory is also the one who is mighty in battle, specifically a battle his people could not hope to fight on their own. He comes back victorious. Now, you might say, especially for the original readers, it would have particular military victories in mind. But this picture of victory, a king who fights our battles, would become symbolic of a much greater battle, a battle with sin and evil itself, a battle with the very thing that made us false, that made us such hypocrites, lifting up our souls to what is false. And he would accomplish this victory, we find out in the scriptures, in a very unexpected way. It's interesting. Jesus is welcomed into the city of Jerusalem as the king of glory in what's called the triumphal entry, the king that they have waited for. They say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That's this king welcoming him in. And he rightfully receives what you could call that worship. He says, yes, that's me, openly declaring it. He doesn't dismiss it. He says, that's who I am. And yet, where does Jesus go next? How does he take up his rule? How does he become this king of glory reigning over all? By taking up his cross. In other words, this king would take up his rule, who would be crowned as the king of glory by not being led into the gates of Jerusalem, but being, by being led out of them. By being led up not the hill upon which God's presence rested, but a much different one. Being led to lay down his own life that we might only know ours we might have life forever, to give us what we have promised here, righteousness and blessing. In fact, did you notice that righteousness that it says is given is something that is given from a Lord of salvation? How would we gain it? But through Christ losing all. But as Philippians 2 tells us, as he would gain a name above all other names and receive the adulation, the praise, the the worship of every creature, as all knees would bow before him, confessing that he is Lord. Why would Christ go to this end, again, that we might have blessing, even righteousness, even the face of God? We might have what we've longed for and looked for in all the wrong places. You see, friends, only the gospel— can correct our false worth Only beholding in that crucified king, our king of glory. Our crying out, as we will in a moment, with a very important song, crown him with many crowns. That is what corrects our false worship, seeing the one who deserves it. As Thomas Chalmers has put it, the best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Isn't that interesting? Is that different than you've expected? The best way to overcome the world is not with morality or self-discipline. Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, Christ. Doesn't mean that they won't deny themselves and have real obedience asked of them, but there becomes a reason why, something better on the other side, the pure pearl of great price, that they would lay aside even their own lives to gain. And what hope does that leave someone like me? I'm encouraged by the end of verse 6, specifically the phrase, the God of Jacob. You see, when it came to hypocrites, To those who said one thing and yet were planning another, to those who were known for being false, it's hard to think of a better example than Jacob. If you don't know much about him, I encourage you to go back to the book of Genesis, a man who, according to the book of Genesis, lied, stole, and cheated almost everyone who was close to him, even his brother and father. His very name means something like deceiver. If there is hope for Jacob, there is hope for me. But not, being, not by being perfect, I mean, after all, that's an impossibility. Instead, only lifting my head to behold and welcome the King of glory. Only that will transform me into the kind of man who once lifted his soul to what is false, to the one who now would surrender all to the new Lord of my life, the King of glory, who alone deserves it, who not only owns all things, but in whom everything I have spent my life looking for is found whether you find yourself to be a Christian or not. Friends, seek him. That is going to be the beating drum of our church, the things that that we're bound around. It's what it means to be a Christian, is to seek the king of glory. To say, this is not about me. This is about him. And I know when I make it all about him, supremely by setting my eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ and confessing he is the only worthy king, when I surrender my life, when I give it up, it's through that I find it. Friends, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you seeking so many wrong things. You know that. You know us so well. And we come not trying to cover up or excuse ourselves, but to say that we want to find in Jesus what we have looked for so many other places, and so we seek your face And we see the King of glory, who has taken up his throne through a cross, who was done so by bearing the infinite cost that my sin deserved, bearing it for my sake, so that I might only know blessing and righteousness from this God, that I might see his face forever. Lord, we I pray for those here who, whether they've considered themselves Christians or not, if they that they would be honest. About what they're actually seeking have they made God even God into a means and to an end would they cry out to you for clean hands and a pure heart and they might find it granted forgiveness granted by resting upon Jesus Christ through faith and it really is for his glory's sake that we exist that we show up this morning for his name's sake even that we pray right now and want to devote ourselves once more even for our short time to come to giving some giving far less worship than you deserve but to giving you worship nonetheless it's for christ's sake we pray amen